This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. I'm alive, but barely. (laughs) Mocab's running on adrenaline and caffeine this morning. Jesus Christ, why is my mom messaging me on Instagram? What's that? Linda Mogap sent an attachment. <laughs> Shark coochie board. <laughs> no, why? No. Why? Because no one can say charcuterie. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Ogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. I haven't heard any of them still, but we are creeping up on one year. Like, I think by the time this drops, we'll be getting close to October, right? Oh, two, two years, years, two years, that's what I meant. I was thinking yeah. of our Patreon, which just hit one year, which by the way, if you're not on it, go sign up. There's lots of good content over there. Different oh, levels. Yeah. Crystal will tell you all about it. If you just can't get enough of MoGab and I, we have a Patreon that we would love for you to join. We've got three levels over there to choose from. At the $5 level, you get a shout out on the podcast and a full length bonus episode every month. September's episode we're recording tomorrow. I'm very excited about it. It's, uh, well, I'm not going to say because we haven't recorded it yet. Because I haven't heard any of them yet. But our last month's episode was on the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case. And then if you jump up $2 to the $7 level, we put out two bon- or two bonus little mini episodes every month that are just like shorter episodes, 20 to 30 minutes uh, each. And sometimes we talk about a true crime that's just shorter. Sometimes we do Am I the Asshole stuff. Mogab did an episode on crazy stuff her mom did. AKA the true crimes in our personal life. <laughs> the true crimes in our personal lives. True crimes at a Waffle House. Again, that's my personal life. <laughs> <laughs> we have a $10 episode where you get 20% off merch. And starting with last week's episode, we are also now putting all episodes ad-free on that level up there. So that is what you can get for the Patreon, and we really, really appreciate the support. Yeah, thanks for all the support, too. We know that we have ads now, and we love all the love we've been getting, because that's obviously the dream, is it not? Yeah, so we do have – we're running ads on the podcast now. We Can you believe it? You know, it <laughs> just took us like a year and a half to get to a point where advertisers want to <laughs> advertise, <laughs> which is really exciting. So thank you for that. And if you don't want to listen to ads, I feel you, you can head over to Patreon 
and we have an ad-free level. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine, but the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pros custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pros proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. All right. Big thanks to On the Case with Paula Zahn, who covered this case for an episode. A lot of information comes from that episode. And then also many, many, many other newspaper articles and that kind of thing from all over oh, the place. Oh, many, many, many. Many, many, many. So sorry. All right, let's get into this case for this week. This was a recommendation I got through email from Amber. So thank you so much, Amber, for this recommendation, uh, because I figured it was about time that we do a case in North Dakota. <gasps> oh my gosh, my like sec- third, my like fourth home. <laughs> I was like, I lived in Ohio and Kentucky. <laughs> I've been there one time for like three days, so... <laughs> And then decided she was going to move there. It's so, so clean. Uh, it's so clean yes. and the people are nice. <laughs> what more could you want? Right. This is the murder of Drew Shadeen. <sighs> we are in 2003 for this one. And as we all know, you were absolutely peaking. And yes. I had absolutely no idea who I was or wanted to be. Drew Shadeen was 22 years old, a miserable and magical time in all of our lives. And she was living her best life at the University of North Dakota in <gasps> Grand Forks, which is about yes! three <laughs> which is about three and a half hours away from her hometown of Pequot, Minnesota, which is a small town of like 2,000 people. She had an older brother named Sven, and at some point when she was younger, her parents, Linda and Alan, divorced. Drew was a gorgeous woman. She had blonde hair, cut in this cute, like, almost pixie cut. She'd been homecoming queen at her high school, which was unsurprising because everyone who knew her adored her. They said she had a really warm personality and just loved to laugh. At 22, Drew was already so many things. She was artistic. She loved basketball, volleyball, and golf. She was an intern in the aviation department at her school which allowed her to travel a lot. She just changed her major to photojournalism, and she was a member of the Gamma Phi Beta sorority. I want to be friends with this girl. Am I friends with this girl? I feel like she's 
She sounds like someone I know. I think she's too cool to be my Is she friend. related to Maddie Tucker or Courtney Bailey? <laughs> but look, those girls, they, they've unsubscribed. She might be because on top of all of that, she also volunteered with underprivileged teen girls. And she also volunteered with the Clothesline Project, which is a project organized by the Women's Center on her college campus where they like hang up t-shirts with messages against violence. All of that while holding down two jobs. One was a part-time job at Victoria's Secret at Columbia Mall in Grand Forks and another at El Rocco Nightclub, all on top of still having a full-time school schedule. So girl was busy. And being in a sorority. Let me tell you, that's like a whole set of stuff That's every like a third other job. Night. That yes. is a third job that you pay for. Right. <laughs> right. But totally worth it. I fully support it. Everyone should join. Go Greek. <laughs> Go Greek. It was around five o'clock on November 22nd, 2003. It was a Saturday and Drew was leaving the mall after finishing up her shift at Victoria's Secret. Her boyfriend, Chris Lang, called to check in with her and she told him that she'd also done a little shopping. She'd bought a new purse for her mom. And she was excited because she'd gotten like this great deal on it. It was going to be a Christmas present. Chris said she had a thing for purses, so he wasn't surprised (laughs) that's what she'd bought. Okay, Chris, what a shocking observation (laughs) that this 20-year-old Especially in 2003, where it's the low, low, low low-rise jeans, which have zero pockets. (laughs) I can picture the purse she bought right now. (laughs) I already know from Coach. (laughs) I don't remember. I know what department store it was from, but I'm not sure what brand it was. She was walking across the parking lot towards her car when he heard her say, oh, my God, okay, okay, before the call was abruptly disconnected. Mm. He said there was no real sense of urgency in her voice. Her tone of voice never really changed. So he just thought her phone had died. And he tried calling her back, but she didn't pick up. But it rang, so it didn't die. I believe it rang. Yes, it was not dead. When Drew didn't call him back after a while, Chris started to get really worried. And then around 745 that night, his phone rang and it was Drew calling. So he quickly picked up, probably so relieved to hear from her. But when he answered the phone, all he heard was the sound of wind and some dial tones before the call was dropped. Chris called her apartment and talked to her roommate, Meg, who was also really worried about Drew. She hadn't heard from her all day. And Meg is a real one, okay? Because by the time Chris calls her, she'd already been calling hospitals looking for Drew. Man, you always need to have that friend. I don't have a single person in my life who'd be calling hospitals if they hadn't heard from me in 10 hours. Bitch. (laughs) Are you kidding? We go much longer than 10 hours without speaking. I mean, barely now. Barely. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Also, your cats would... (laughs) (laughs) They'd be on the phone at the blinds. Your neighbor would know. (laughs) Meg was thinking maybe she'd been in a car accident or something, but there was no one matching her description at any of the local hospitals. And then Meg really started to panic when she heard a voicemail on the apartment's answering machine that was left around 9.15. It was Drew's manager at El Rocco, the nightclub. Drew had a shift that night that was supposed to start at 9, and it was her manager looking for her. (gasps) Drew hadn't made it to her shift. And there was no way she would miss a shift at her job. She was not the type to blow off her commitments. She'd never done anything like that before. It was really clear to Meg that something was terribly wrong here. So she called the police. Yeah, because a manager at a nightclub's likely not calling to look for you if you, like, skip work all of the time. 
I feel right. Like. They're like, oh, once again, yeah, they're late. Or it was like 15 minutes, you know? Yeah, and let me knew, just say, like, I never got Waffle House phone calls because you're <laughs> going to be there at 7. You back that up. I'm waking up at like 5.30. They knew. Don't don't look for me <laughs> until it's past 8.30. <laughs> I don't know. Police responded immediately. This was a young person with very strong ties to her community who went missing under suspicious circumstances. Not to mention that recently there had been a series of abdu- of abductions near Grand Forks, so the police were ready to spring into action. And then I had a line in here about how they're in Grand Forks, so the police were probably pretty bored too. But then I Googled it, and actually Grand Forks has a higher crime rate than 90% of all of the cities in North Dakota of all sizes. I think maybe only Fargo outranks them, but they're probably still much safer than other areas in the country. Because it's I know North that Dakota. it's Grand Forks, which is not the same as Forks from Twilight, but that's Correct. literally what I'm picturing. And right. it kind of yeah. does look like that. <laughs> really? It's like wooded and wet? Uh, not the wet part, but I mean, there's just everything is so green. I mean, obviously, oh. I feel that way because I live here and like, you know, lived in Houston. How is everything like. so green It does if it doesn't rain all the time? Well, maybe it does. It just didn't rain the three days I was there, okay? Oh, well. Anyway, the police responded quickly to Meg's calls. They asked what kind of car Drew drove, and Meg described Drew's red two-door Oldsmobile with this, like, gray primer spot on the front. (laughs) She also told them that Drew's boyfriend, Chris, had spoken to Drew earlier and was on the phone with her. When Chris told detectives about that phone call, how she had said, oh, my God, okay, okay, and then the call just disconnected suddenly, they were very alarmed. Chris knew he had to tell Drew's mother, Linda Walker, who was still living in Minnesota. He had to call her and tell her that something was wrong, and he was trying not to panic her, but he told her that Drew hadn't made it to her second job, and immediately, like everybody else, Linda knew something was wrong. Drew would not let someone down. But Linda lived hundreds of miles from Grand Forks, and she didn't know what she could do. It was just like the most helpless feeling. Well, Linda, you'll figure it out. Linda's always (laughs) did, despite the distance. She called Drew's dad, Alan. They were divorced, but in this moment, they were a team. And they decided that Linda would stay home in Minnesota to monitor the phones in case Drew called, and Alan would head to North Dakota. He didn't bring anything but his keys and the clothes on his back. Like, the second he got, gets this phone That's call, it. he's running out the door, jumping in the truck, driving straight to North Dakota in the middle of the night. A sense of guilt came on that he just couldn't shake because he was the one that had convinced Drew to go to Grand Forks, to go to school there, and he thought it was supposed to be a safe place. And he was just shocked that something like this was happening. It's so hard because no matter what happens, you could convince yourself that you were somehow, like, responsible. Responsible. Uh, Yes. No matter, like, how... You can always back it back to, well, if I hadn't suggested the University of North Dakota, maybe she would have gone to... South Dakota, and this wouldn't have happened because she wouldn't have been in that place at that time here. And every person involved could say that, like the boyfriend, the mom, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. The roommate. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just so hard. Whoever suggested she get a job at Victoria's Secret or like, you know, whatever, the manager there. If I had just not hired her. What if I did? She hadn't been. Stop and get the purse. Right. Uh, The what ifs, the what ifs kill me. I play that what if game a lot of like, what if I left two minutes earlier and I was involved in that accident that I just passed? Or like, yeah. and what kept me? Like, I, or sometimes if I like have to go back inside to get something I forgot, like, 
what atrocity did I just avoid by that? Or what atrocity am I going to encounter because of that? Yeah. I think that's like your Pisces part. It's because maybe because I remember the worst car accident I was ever in. My mom should have been paralyzed. It was so bad. The only kid. Yeah. The only reason she wasn't was because the car that hit us was like one of the smallest cars at on the road at the time. And after we stopped spinning and like kind of caught our breath, I told her we were we had been leaving the mall. I told her if we had just stopped for ice cream, this wouldn't have happened because I'd been <laughs> asking <Okay>. for ice cream. <laughs> I remember that now as you say it. And like, mm-hmm. if I could describe your like vibe. I was nine, one, by the way. I was nine I know, for context. I mean. <laughs> like you had no. Uh-uh. I love that if, confidence. Your confident energy. You if we had just stopped it. for ice cream. This never what did she happened. say back? <laughs> Do you remember? Probably you probably I think have to she cut laughed. It anyway. I think she laughed and said, uh, "You're right." So yeah, <laughs> she was like, "Yep, we should have stopped for ice cream." You're right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, so while Alan is driving to Grand Forks, police officers find Drew's car still parked at the mall, and the officer who found it said it was instantly recognizable because of that unpainted spot on the car. But I also have to think it's like 10 o'clock at night. It's probably the only car in the parking lot, like, by that point. Right. I mean, you can match it with a license plate, too. I mean. Right. The car was unlocked, and inside was the new purse that Drew had bought that afternoon, still in the shopping bag. So, like, she'd gotten to her car. She'd, like, opened the back door, had thrown the stuff in, and then hadn't made it into the driver's seat. This is like the middle of the day, though, right? Yes. This was at 5 o'clock. When she was on the phone with Chris, it was 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. So, I mean, the mall is Broad daylight. Busy. Busy mall. Yes. And it's a Saturday. So, it's like really busy at that time. I'm sure she's kind of like parked towards the back. I feel like employees always have to kind of like their ass. I worked at the mall and there was like a line painted in the parking lot and we had to park beyond that. But even so, it's at five o'clock. Like if it was late, we'd always either have to walk out as a group or we'd have to be escorted out by security or something um, if it was like after the mall closed. But this is like the sun is up. Well, and I don't know the like North Dakota mall scene, but typically malls are like off of a very busy road. Like our two malls here, like it's off of like a five lane. Yeah, they're not buried in the middle of a neighborhood or like way off the freeway. Yeah, right. Wait, when did you work at the mall? Where did you work? I worked at The Gap. I must have worked there for like a summer when I came home or something. Oh, remember when you worked at Lacoste? I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, I worked at Lacoste the at, the out- at the San Marcos Outlet Mall. Yep. Oh, I forgot about that. I did. I did. We had to pop that collar. Mm, love that. I worked there after it was required. After they stopped making it required to wear double polos with the collars popped. That used to be like yeah. what you had to wear when you worked there. I did not have to do that. <laughs> On the ground, laying just a few feet from the car, was a nylon sheath. And I, we're going to say the word sheath a whole lot. I don't think I've ever said it in my whole life. But it's <laughs> but it's like the little pocket that you like would slide a knife yeah. through. It looked like a it, sheath is. Yeah, it looked like it had contained a knife. And it looked I like don't it, love the word, though, which I, I didn't know I had an opinion on until you said it. Agreed. Like that. I, I totally agree. I would have never put that on my list of words <laughs> on our Mount Rushmore, but sheath might be. And I like all those commode. letters. I like all those letters and all those sounds. I don't. I like it all. But I together, think it's having a sh and a th- at the end. It's is there not, something yes. else that is there another word that's like a sh and a th? No, sh- I know. Yeah, chef. That's an f. Yeah, I don't love it. I don't love it. 
It looked like it had been dropped there recently. It hadn't been affected by the weather or anything like that, which suggested that maybe Drew had been kidnapped at knife point. Detectives couldn't believe this woman had been snatched at five o'clock at night and just vanished without anyone seeing anything, or at least calling it in if they had. Alan arrived in Grand Forks after police had finished processing Drew's car, but it was still sitting there in the parking lot when Alan pulled in. When he saw all of her stuff still in the car, he just knew something sinister had happened. But still, he held on to hope. It was possible that Drew had just gone off with someone, and soon enough they'd be dropping her back off at the car. That's what you want to think, but they she likely would have called somebody. I mean, you're just... You're going with the possibilities that she's fine before you're facing the possibilities that she's not. And so he stayed in that parking lot all night just watching her car. Mm. He never took his eyes off of her car, hoping that soon she'll be back. But hours went by and Drew never came and his hope was dwindling. His mind kept going back to a conversation that he'd had with Drew a few weeks before. She told him that there was this man that she'd met at work and that he'd been stalking her. Uh. It had really worried Alan. He'd wanted to come to Grand Forks and just solve this problem for her. But Drew had told him not to come. She said that she could handle it. And now Alan was full of pain and guilt for not coming down to deal with this guy. He was certain that this guy must be responsible for this. Police arrived uh, before sunrise to tow the car and take it for imp- and impound it. And Alan told them who he was, and he told them about this stalker that Drew had mentioned. And they took him really seriously, and it only took them a matter of hours to track this guy down. But it was very clear early on that he didn't have anything to do with Drew's disappearance. So their first steps was to track Drew's movements in the mall. They grabbed as much surveillance footage from inside and outside the mall as they could, And they watched hours and hours of footage. And they finally found her shopping at Marshall Fields, which is where she bought the purse for her mom. And I'm assuming that's like a department store in North Dakota. We don't have them here, so I've never heard of it. But it looked like like a department store. like a Steinmart situation. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They saw her on the video with her phone pressed to her ear and knew that she was talking to her boyfriend, Chris, on the phone. But once Drew left Marshall Fields, they lost her. There weren't any cameras outside the store or out in the parking lot. So there was no way to see why that phone call had ended so suddenly. So their next step was to ping pong her cell phone. And two days after her disappearance, they saw that Drew's phone was pinging off of a tower in Crookston, Minnesota, which is just across the state border from North Dakota. Like Grand Forks is right on the North Dakota-Minnesota border. And then Mm -hmm. Crookston is just like 30 minutes away from Grand Forks in Minnesota. But even though they're close, if this was a kidnapping, which all signs were pointing to this is a kidnapping, then this had just become a federal crime. Just because you cross like one state border, right? Exactly. So taking someone across state lines means the FBI came on board this investigation. Crookston, Minnesota, is in a pretty rural area. It's like this one small little town surrounded by acres and acres and acres of farmland is what it looks like on Google Maps. I think it's farmland. (laughs) I like then Googled, is this farmland? And, you know, (laughs) they said there's a lot of it in Minnesota. Police and volunteers came out to search the area on ATVs, on foot, shoulder to shoulder to see if they could find any evidence on where Drew came from. Farmers donated fuel for the search, restaurants donated meals, motels offer, offered up rooms to the searchers, 
Money came pouring in from people all around the world to help with the search effort. It was really clear that the people of North Dakota and Minnesota look out for each other, and they all showed up for Drew. And this is in the winter in Minnesota. So they're dealing with a yeah, they're dealing with a lot of walking through snow. The foot searchers are told to kind of kick around in the snow as they walk because there could be small items hiding in the snow that could help them. And this really paid off. Around noon on the second day of the search, one of the search parties was kicking through the snow and found a woman's black shoe off the side of the road under a bridge called the 75 Bypass Bridge, which goes over Red Lake River, which I believe was frozen over at the time. And Red Lake River actually runs around Crookston, but it runs through Grand Forks as well. It goes up there too. And it's actually the dividing line between the states. I feel like this is the first case we've talked about with like a foot search in like harsh winter conditions. I never thought about like something being frozen over. Like I'm sure maybe they break that open and check, but like you could put a body in a body of water and then it's frozen or everything's buried by the snow and then it melts and it ruins like evidence. I just never thought about all that. Yeah, I know. Me either. And I think this was like the next day after she disappeared. So it might be too soon for like something to freeze over in that amount of time. I don't know. But like even if it was art, like if stuff is frozen or like, you know, whatever, it's already snowed. Yeah. You could just like bury a body in the snow. Right. Exactly. So they have this shoe. Police called Meg Murphy, Drew's roommate, to see if she recognized the shoe as Drew's. And she raced down to the police department, and the second she saw that shoe, she knew it was Drew's, and she knew that she was never going to see her friend again. Finding an article of Drew's clothing in such a rural area did not bode well. Police moved their search to a few square miles around the 75 Bypass Bridge where the shoe was found, and this is an area with abandoned buildings, abandoned farmhouses, ravines, trees, fields. They're searching all of these as well as along any roads a person could have driven down. And this is wild to me that they were even able to find that shoe because the only reason they're searching in this area is because they were able to track her phone there. Like if they hadn't tracked her phone to Crookston, they never would have found anything. By this time, Drew's mom, Linda, decided she couldn't sit around in Minnesota anymore and she took off to Grand Forks. And she said that this is the early 2000s, too. Yeah. Cell phone pings. I mean, 2003, like that's like real accurate. I feel like for them to be rare and finding something that early. Yeah. By this time, Drew's mom, Linda, decided she couldn't sit around in Minnesota anymore. And she took off to Grand Forks. And she said that she went to Drew's room at her apartment and that it was just a harsh reality looking around her room with everything set out like it had been when she'd left that morning, and to just know that she probably wasn't coming back to it. She found a pair of Drew's pajamas and, like, held them to her face so she could smell her perfume. Hmm. That's not to say that Linda was without hope. There was always the chance that whoever had taken her was holding her for whatever reason, and she wanted to make sure that all of the search volunteers kept their hope alive as well. And so before she flew back to Minnesota that night, she met up with the volunteers to talk to them and thank them. And her husband, Sid, handed out socks and other clothing items to searchers. From the airplane that night, she, could, she said that she could see the circle on the ground where they'd marked off the search area for Drew. And she just felt so desperate. 
Okay, that is something I think about. You know how you were like, do you ever think about what thing holds you up or, you know? Mm -hmm. Because I think because I'm on planes so often and I'm usually traveling for like a happy occasion. I mean, Mm -hmm. sometimes not, but I always look around and I'm like, the person in front of me, like, are they going to something like – yeah. Especially if the plane's delayed. I'm like, is this person going to miss their daughter's wedding? Is this person missing their, like, so-and-so's funeral? Like, I just always think about how, like – at any given point on a plane, it's like someone's best day of their life or someone's worst day in their life. And then at the end of the day, we're all in different places. I mean, that is like what I think about all the time with travel. It's like yeah. someone's flying to like their daughter's search party on the same plane where I'm going to be flying to like go look at wedding dresses. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's yeah, it's why uh, people watching at the airport is always so interesting because everybody mm-hmm. has a story and it's. Sometimes it feels like we're in this simulation where everybody around us are just like non-player characters, you know, going about their business. Mm-hmm. Like, And then when you stop and really look at people and realize that every single person has a story, every single person has people in their life that love them and a history and, you know, mm-hmm. like it's just just like you. And it just kind of makes you feel so small and insignificant, but also like a part of all the human beings on this planet, you know, like connected. I'm going to try and really have some grace this uh, travel time now that you said that because airport is so true, but airports are also where I get the most irritable so quickly Yeah, because Mm -hmm. it's like, why is all sense of like the rules of the road and like human decency seems to come to but like – your uh, huh. your history and your story does not give you the the entitlement of uh, some people Let's at airports. Playing Candy Crush without your AirPods in. <laughs> who are you? Like who? What is your story that no. you think it's acceptable to play Candy Crush at full volume no. without AirPods in? And you're not like a small child who needs to be just redirected by an adult. Like you're like a teenager <laughs> or a grown adult. Redirected. FaceTiming in public. Oh, anyways, yeah. Give grace when you travel, but man. Oh, yeah, this guy. Oh, the FaceTime. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Police had basically run through all the people in Drew's life that could have been responsible for this, and they weren't getting anywhere. The possibility that it was a stranger abduction is so unlikely, but it was looking like that's what had happened here. And I tried looking up actual statistics of adult abductions by strangers, but all the numbers I could really find easily were on children. And every website gave wildly different percentages, some of which I know are just totally made up. But we do well, know- we just saw that with Googling the toxic dog <laughs> Right, right, exactly. But we do know that it's rare for a stranger to be responsible for an abduction. That is rare. It's usually almost always you know. someone that you know. So they're like, okay, it could be literally anybody. Where do we start? They start with all of the registered sex offenders in the area that Drew's shoe was found in, so near Crookston. Special Agent Dan Alquist from the FBI is the lucky guy in charge of going through that list. And there were like a 100 known sex offenders living in the area of the time, or living in the area of the search, which is totally wild to me because there's only like 7,000 people in Crookston. And I don't know how wide their search parameters were, but like the next town over is far away. It just seems like a lot for this area. Maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. It just, I'm like. Yeah, for a rural area. I would be surprised to find a hundred known sex offenders within like a certain radius of me. And well, I'm but sure also because I've on looked. that list, you're trying to move somewhere where people don't know you. So they, uh, they, they unintentionally started their own like compound. Yeah, maybe so. 
Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day -day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Creepers. But there was one name on that list that stood out to police. Uh, it was a name that they'd actually had a tip about. A 50-year-old piece of human garbage named Alfonso Rodriguez I'm not even interested. Jr. <laughs> no, not interested. No. He was the son of migrant farm workers who had settled in 1963 in Crookston, Minnesota. A woman named Shirley Iverson had heard the news about Drew, and immediately it reminded her of what had happened to her in 1974 at the hands of Alfonso Rodriguez. She had been his first rape victim. Uh, she, at age 18, he was 21 at the time, he'd asked her for a ride home, and it's not really clear if she gave him the ride or not, but he raped her. And then he went on to rape another woman, and he was convicted for both of those. And he spent time in prison and in treatment for sex offenders. But after he was released in 1979, he immediately kidnapped and attempted to rape a third woman. 
And some sources oh say kidnapped and raped. Some sources say attempted kidnapped and and, ra- and some sources say attempted rape. So I'm not sure exactly what happened in 1979. I did try to find it. It was all terrible. It was uh, yeah, all terrible, it was all though. terrible. And for that event in 1979, he was sentenced to 23 years in prison. And he'd only been out for six months when Drew went missing. Okay. Shirley said it just sounded like it was him. He'd shown long ago that he was capable of committing violent crimes, and all of the women he attacked talked about being in fear for their lives. She said when she looks at him, she sees a sexual predator who is very predatory in nature and opportunistic for his victims. She'd been notified when Alfonso was released from prison, and she just knew the safety of the people in her community is now in jeopardy because he's out. When Alfonso was released from prison, he was labeled as a level three sex offender. This is the most serious level. It's considered a high risk offender and a severe threat to society. Level three sex offenders are highly likely to reoffend. And Shirley was hoping very much that Drew was still alive and she knew she had to call in a tip about this guy. Oh, makes me want to like do, look at my sex offender list. I mean, I don't want to look it up, like what's near me. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, should I be more informed? Like, that's why it's out there. But I, I've i looked up mine around, like, my neighborhood like, and stuff. I guess if I had, like, a – yeah, once I move, like, to a like, mm-hmm. neighborhood, I think I will. Probably yeah. complex seems like a uh, – we, we just have some level ones and level twos, but I know who they are, and I've seen their face. <laughs> <laughs> Love that for you. Uh, yeah. For them. And none in my, like, neighborhood. They're all in the neighborhood, like, next to me or the neighborhood behind me. Authorities were already looking at Alfonso when the tip came in, and the more they learned about him, the more apparent it was that they needed to track him down quick. Since he'd been released from prison, he was living with his mother in Crookston, Minnesota, just a few miles from where Drew's shoe was found under that bridge. He was working for a local contractor at a construction site in McIntosh, Minnesota, about 40 minutes from Crookston. Detectives went down to the construction site and they found Alfonso. They questioned him, letting him know that everyone was a suspect until they could rule them out. And they asked him where he was on Saturday, November 22nd. And Alfonso told them that he was in Grand Forks that day. Oh. He said he'd gone shopping at Sam's and then Walmart and then Target and then to the mall, which obviously put him at the scene of the crime. Also, no one needs to go to Sam's, Target, and Walmart. I thought the same, the same time. Thing. Or you're very inefficient. I totally agree. I'm like, why are you going to Sam's and then Walmart and then Target? What do you look? Oh, oh, oh! I know oh. what he was doing. We'll talk about it in a second. Ew! I just ew ew. Okay. So <laughs> now Alfonso does have an intellectual disability. His IQ is 74, meaning he is cognitively impaired. An average IQ is around 100. He also has a history of brain trauma, symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder, and a family history of dementia. And this is probably why he gave up this information so readily. Uh, however, an intellectual disability, cognitive impairment does not excuse being a disgusting rapist. So Yeah. God, I bet people hate that. Like, I bet people with those, like, um... Yeah, like, don't let me in with him. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Agent Alquist asked him where he went after the mall, and he said he went to a movie. So they asked him what movie. And he said the 4.30 showing of Once Upon a Time in Mexico. 
Agent Alquist let his uh, partner continue the interview with uh, Alfonso while he stepped away to call the command to post. To look up the movies? <laughs> <laughs> well, he couldn't at the time. It was 2003, but that's what I would have been doing. Called movie phone. <laughs> yeah. You remember movie phone? No, he told he called command post and told them to go down to the movie theater in Grand Forks at the mall and ask them what movies were playing on Saturday night and what the showtimes were for those movies. So while he waited to hear back about the movie, Agent Alquist asked Alfonso if they had consent to search his car. And he said, sure. And so they looked through the car for anything that might link him to Drew's disappearance. And he didn't seem nervous at all while they were searching. But again, you know, the guy has a cognitive impairment. So I wonder how much Mm -hmm. about this search he understood. His car was fairly new. The passenger seat was clean. But the trunk is where they found some evidence. It was full of fishing gear, and they found a pair of rubber gloves and a knife. They asked him what the knife was for, and he said he used it for work. But this is like a stubby, short knife with a blade a couple of inches long that pulls out of the handle. It's like short and fat knife. It doesn't look with like... fishing gear, like, why wouldn't you say to, like, to clean a fish? Right. You know what I mean? Right. And it doesn't look like a knife you'd use on a construction site. And the knife also didn't appear to be a match to that nylon sheath found at the crime scene. Like, uh, Mm. I guess they detectives have been told they were looking for a very specific knife and it wasn't this one. Yeah, I my brother works in construction. I don't know that he's ever had like a knife and like like, a saw maybe, but like not a knife knife. Right. Like, what would you need to cut with a knife? I don't know. I'm not. I'm gosh, my knowledge of construction. we are definitely experts in the construction field. Yikes. Very minimal. And it definitely wasn't against the law for him to have a knife like this. It didn't match the knife they were looking for. And Alfonso had been very cooperative this whole time. But detectives just couldn't shake the feeling that he was involved somehow. It might all come down to whether they were able to confirm that alibi or not. If he was really at a 4.30 showing of Once Upon a Time in Mexico, it couldn't be him. And they because they knew that Drew had been taken from that parking lot at 5 o'clock because of the phone records with her boyfriend. Right. It didn't take long for detectives to realize that he'd lied about seeing the movie. Once Upon a Time in Mexico had come out in like early September of that year. And by the end of November, when Drew was taken, local theaters in Grand Forks weren't even playing the movie anymore. Most theaters only run movies for about a month, maybe longer if the movie is a big hit. And that particular movie, it did all right, but it wasn't so big of a hit that it was still playing 10 weeks after its release. It also seems like if you're going to say a movie in a time, like you got to make sure. Like, I feel like he could have said something else that wasn't so easy to like fact check right then in the moment. Well, he's coming up. It's because he wasn't prepared at all. He just was coming up with it on the spot. This was huge red flag number one. Red flag number two was when investigators realized that the sheath they'd found on the ground, it was only sold with the knife. Like they came together. You couldn't just buy the sheath by itself. You had to buy it with a knife. So they went to like, I don't know, like a knife store and they got the same (laughs) knife sheath combo. And when they took the knife out of the sheath, they realized they'd been wrong about the type of knife they were looking for. The knife that came with that sheath was exactly the same as the one they'd found in Alfonso's trunk. Oh. hmm This evidence about the knife, along with lying about his alibi and obviously all of his past transgressions, meant that Alfonso was now their one and only suspect. 
They knew that it had been him that had taken Drew, but they still didn't know what he did with her. So they raced back to Minnesota directly to Alfonso. They picked him up and they took him to a Crookston police station to question him. And they confronted him with the fact that the movie was not playing anywhere in town. Ooh, get him. Yeah. And Alfonso said he'd seen that movie before, but maybe on a different week. But he insisted that he was at the movie on Saturday, but I guess couldn't tell them like what movie he'd seen. Detectives wanted to know if he was holding Drew captive. It's what everyone was hoping. But Alfonso said he'd never seen her, never talked to her, didn't know who she was. So they went back to that knife and Agent Alquist hoped that it would still be in the trunk. So he told Alfonso that he wanted to search his car again because he wanted another look at that knife. And Alfonso said, oh, if that's all you want, sure, I'll give you the knife. So they all walked out to the parking lot and he opened the trunk for them. And Alquist saw that the knife was still in the exact same place that it had been before. So when they went back inside to question him some more, Alfonso said he didn't want to admit to something he hadn't done and he asked for a lawyer. And so they stopped the interview immediately. But Alfonso would not be leaving. He was held overnight while they searched his mom's house where he'd been living and impounded his car for testing. While they were waiting for the results of all of these tests, the DA's office ordered that they let Alfonso go because there wasn't enough probable cause to arrest him. I mean, they are just kind of going off of finding him on the sex offender list. Right. Yeah, and then finding a knife that matched the sheet that doesn't have anything on, like, it's not like they have found Drew's DNA or anything at this point. Detectives were terrified that this would jeopardize their case. Maybe Alfonso would, like, be able to get away or be able to hide evidence. But maybe, while he's trying to hide the evidence, maybe he'd lead them right to the evidence. So a surveillance team was put on to watch him 24 hours a day. And then... While forensics was processing the car, they spotted something that detectives had missed when they'd just done their search of the car. Spattered across the back seat were teeny tiny specks of blood, so small that they were almost impossible to see. No one had noticed it before. Definitely spatter then. Definitely spatter then. We know the difference between the spatter and the splatter. The spatter is smaller for those that missed that uh, that episode. I think that was the that <laughs> that absolute train wreck of a tangent <laughs> yeah. is what you missed. Yeah, on the that was the Cam family murders, right? How do you remember that? I don't know. I feel like it was a whole <laughs> five episodes. <laughs> no one had noticed these specks of blood before, and Agent Alquist said that once the forensics guy like pointed out one of the specks. Suddenly, he could see them all, and it was like a constellation across the back seat. And I don't know if this episode of On the Case, like, photoshopped the pictures of the back seat, because when they showed photos of it, the blood was so clearly visible all over the back seat. And I'm like, surely this is, like, photoshopped, like, they're just, just putting like these they blood added spots. It. Yeah, like, yeah. they added it in. So, of course, they like get- a heat map, or like a map. Right, <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. So, of course, they get samples of the blood to test, and they continued to build their case against Alfonso. They went to every single store near the mall to see if they could find any evidence of his movements that day. And they were able to find him walking into the Target in Grand Forks, which is just across the street from the mall, just minutes after Drew got off work from Victoria's Secret and before she started doing her purse shopping and all that. 
Then they see him go to leave the store, but instead of walking out the doors, he sits on a bench by the exit for like 10 or 15 minutes, just sits there. And he doesn't have any bags with him. He hasn't purchased anything. As soon as a blonde- Bench is outside of the Target. No, so. bench is inside of the Target before that, right by the exit door. Oh, okay. As soon as a blonde woman leaves the store pushing a shopping cart, Alfonso gets up and follows her out. And it looked like he was stalking this woman, but something happened that made him stop pursuing her in the parking lot. Investigators weren't sure what, but they said that she was the luckiest woman in Grand Forks. And, you know, maybe there was someone waiting for her in the car or the parking lot was just too busy. Something spooked him off. And so he headed to the mall where he encountered Drew in the parking lot. I thought it wasn't him. Oh, you did? (laughs) Yeah, for a second when I was like, they just kind of randomly picked him. And the sheath doesn't really, I don't know. Like, I was kind of thinking, like, this feels very lucky. Yeah. I think that they really focused on him from the beginning, which, I'm, you know, we have seen many times police focus on one person too early on in an investigation and they get blinders on and they just like can't see anybody else. And I think that it's possible that that's what was happening in this case, but they happen to be right because they know for sure that it was him when they get the results back from that blood spatter in the car, which turned out to be Drew's blood. It matched her. Yeah. I mean, at that point I knew, but yeah. And I, when you were like, I said, Sam's Walmart and a Target, and you're like, ew. Well, okay. So this is what I'm thinking because he's stalking this woman at Target. I think he went to all those places looking for someone to hurt. Well, I could have told him, not that this isn't funny and I don't want to make a joke, but you're not getting away with shit on a Saturday at a Target. Right. Or Sam's even. Oh, my God. Are you kidding? Like, But like the mall? I mean, Yeah. Yeah. I just, I, do people – I haven't been to a mall in years. Well, that's not true. I went to a mall to meet someone, and then we went immediately across the street to Chewy's. But, like, do people go to the mall and shop the whole mall? Like, I'm trying to go to – if I need something from a mall, I'm getting it on Amazon. I'm trying to go to, like, one store. I haven't, like, gone to the mall and walked through the mall and gone into store to store in, like, probably since college. Like, really shopped a mall in a very long time. But I guess yeah. it was the early 2000s. So I if I, I just haven't done that. If I go to the mall, it's because I'm going for like one specific reason. But I usually will try to hit up a few stores because I don't ever yeah. want to walk back in there again. <laughs> right. I know. Like I said goodbye to the mall in right. like 2012. I've not been back. I, I need to go to the mall because it's the only place where I can get the screen protector on my phone replaced. And right now it looks like it's like a shattered screen because the screen protector is totally uh, shattered. I just did that yesterday. I just went to AT&T and they did it. They know for sure now. They've got their guy. The blood results have come back. It's Drew. So they go to get Alfonso. They were able to track him down really quickly. They arrested him without incident. And now all that was left was to find Drew. Her family was still clinging to the hope that she was alive, that he was holding her for whatever reason. But months went by and that hope was dwindling. I mean, I'm not sure that it that it still really existed, you know, but a little spark. The community in Grand Forks was on high alert, especially the women. Reports of sexual assault were way on the rise, and it's likely not because more assaults were happening, but because more victims were reporting their assaults because of their awareness of Drew's cases. 
more women in the area are starting to take self-defense classes, but mm. it's also so important to realize that a case like Drew's is rare. Sexual violence committed by a stranger is rare. The vast majority of victims are attacked by people they know. And it's amazing to learn how to defend yourself and to take your safety seriously. But we also need to stay focused on preventing perpetrators from continuing to perpetrate. Laura Frisch, the Director of Advocacy and Empowerment at Community Violence Intervention Center, says that this has to start with a cultural shift that doesn't objectify women, raising children in a society that doesn't support violence, which means healing trauma at all levels, educating children on their self-worth, how to treat others, how to be treated and how not to be treated. And yeah. all of these things can break these cycles of violence. So we have to do more than just make women take self-defense classes. Yeah, carry pepper spray. Like, no. Right, right. Yes, I mean, no. yes, do those things. But <laughs> yeah, also, but... like, that's not a solution. That's not a solution. Right. It's like a Band-Aid to a symptom, not the problem. Right. And you're putting all of the... All of the responsibility on victims, yeah, or potential victims. Yeah. Is that why people think we're man-haters? Because we're saying that men shouldn't rape women? Right. But we're also saying women shouldn't rape men. Like, we're we're saying it all. People shouldn't touch men. Keep your hands to yourself. (laughs) Keep your hands to yourself. We learned it in kindergarten. That book was true. I tried. I tried my best. They don't learn it, though. Everything you need to learn. Everything you need to know, you learn in kindergarten. Keep your hands to yourself. Yeah, God. Then on April 17th, 2004, five months after Drew's disappearance, hundreds of volunteers gathered for another massive search for Drew. Her sorority sisters were out there knowing that if it had been any one of them that had gone missing, Drew would have done whatever she could to find them. And they were determined not to allow her to be forgotten. Oh, this just makes me... I know. Retired Deputy Sheriff Dick Rue saw Linda Walker that morning, Drew's mom, and she was just in tears while she's trying to hand out sandwiches to the volunteers. And he went up to her and he told her that he wanted her to know that they were never going to quit. They were going to keep searching for her until they found her. Hmm. So as the search began, Rue and a partner, I'm not sure who the partner was, but they went out in a separate direction from the rest of the volunteers. And they went walking down a road about two miles northwest of where her shoe had been found. And this is about a mile or so from where Alfonso Rodriguez lived as a kid and where he liked to go fishing. And as a reminder, they had been searching in November and December when she went missing. This is now April. So spring has come. Snow has melted. And they were searching an area that had been searched before. It had been passed over and passed by searchers for months. But... Now the snow had begun to thaw, and Rue spotted something <gasps> in this ravine, and that something turned out to be the body of Drew Shadeen. Oh, God. The search had only been going on for like an hour or two. So she only two. covered by snow? Like they didn't bury mm-hmm. her? Mm-mm. He didn't bury her? Only no, her just like, like threw her down a ravine. Yeah. And because of the snow, she hadn't been spotted. They had only been searching for like an hour or two that day when he found her. She was half clothed with her wrists tied behind her back, a rope tied around her neck, and a shopping bag found under the rope, which suggested that it had been placed over her head. And 
I'm not sure if that was like a plastic. I assume it was like a plastic shopping bag, what they're talking about. Mm. There was evidence she'd been raped, beaten, and stabbed. She had several lacerations on her body, including a five and a half inch cut on her neck. The medical examiner couldn't give a specific cause of death and said that it was either the major neck wound, suffocation, or from exposure to the elements. Her cell phone was also found a few steps away, and they realized that it must have been Alfonso who called Chris Lang back, the call where he all he heard was wind and then yeah. dial tones. He must have accidentally called him back as he was wiping his fingerprints off the phone, is what police think. <laughs> They also found her other shoe and a peacoat with trace DNA evidence that connected it to Alfonso Rodriguez. Love a good peacoat. Drew's parents, Alan and Linda, and her boyfriend, Chris, were all together when the call came in, summoning them to the command center like they were at the search location. The command mm-hmm. center of the search had been set up in a trailer behind the local high school, and all of them knew what this meant, that they'd found Drew's body. They were all devastated, and it was just silence in the car on the drive back to the trailer. Nobody said a word. After the news was confirmed, Alan went to thank all of the volunteers and members of law enforcement that had helped find Drew. Her family brought her body back to Pequot Lakes, Minnesota, where she was buried. About 1,500 people turned up for the funeral. Mm There were 600 people crammed into this conference center where the ceremony was taking place and then another or the service was taking place. And another like 900 stood around two white tents that had this live broadcast of the service going on. And thousands more watched the service from home. The men carrying her casket included those that had led the searches for her body. And the honorary pallbearers were her sorority sisters from Gamma Phi Beta. I know. Linda Walker followed behind the casket, clutching on one side the arm of Alan and on the other side her husband, Sidney Walker. I mean, can you imagine that, like, we spent, I don't know, I just, I don't know if it's because I'm, like, in it all the time, but, and I've worked with chapters that have lost a member, but, like, you're with these women every day. Mm -hmm. You live with them. You do Mm -hmm. everything together. You eat meals. I mean, like, Mm -hmm. there is no, like, more intimate setting I mean, like, yeah, you have your friends, but, like, you're not living with them, eating with them, doing everything with them. I mean, like, it, ugh, it just kills me and kills me. I know. Whew. I know. Anyways. Her friends spoke about how Drew always saw the best in everyone, and she never ended a single conversation without saying, I love you. Her aunt spoke about how she had nicknamed Drew Princess, which is almost as bad as uh, Russell's parents' (laughs) nickname for him, Handsome. (laughs) Gosh. U.S. Attorney for North Dakota, Drew Wrigley, he was one of the prosecutors in the case. And as soon as police found her body, he added murder to the kidnapping charges Alfonso was already facing, which made him eligible for the death penalty. And his bail was set for $5 million. Neither North Dakota nor Minnesota have the death penalty, but kidnapping her and bringing her across state lines made this a federal case, which means that he could get the death penalty. He was eligible for that. It would be the first death penalty case in North Dakota in a century. (sighs) The trial started on August 30th, 2006, and the prosecution ran through their theory of the crime, which was that he'd managed to abduct Drew in that mall parking lot and took her to a remote area near Crookston that he was familiar with. He drove her up a little farm path to a field, took a knife, plunged it into her neck, and then left her to die. 
That's so sad. Yes. I wonder, Mm -hmm. I was just thinking, like, you know how we were saying he went to all those other places and, like, probably was, like, looking for a victim the same way? Mm Mm-hmm. I think in those parking lots, because I was thinking, like, I just understand how her situation was different, like the mall. But maybe it is because people are constantly in and out, like a Walmart, Target, and a Sam's, because you're going in there getting a few things. Like, you do go to the mall and spend hours. Mm -hmm. So I do think a mall parking lot, although there's a lot of cars, there's less, like, foot traffic. Yeah. Like, there's always someone in and out of a Target, a Walmart. Like the mall, sometimes it could be. You're spending a few less minutes. time inside a Target or a Walmart than you potentially are inside a mall. Like yeah. a mall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. There's just like a small window. But it's like people are always arriving, you know? I don't know. Yeah. <sighs> I don't know. Yeah. Or maybe she's just more trusting. Like the. Like, maybe he asked for help or something because she was like, okay, okay, hold on, you know? Okay, I, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of people in here referred to him as a predator. And I do not like referring to people like this as predators because I think that it puts into your head an image of a monster. Like a cheetah. Yeah, right. like a freaking like coming for you. Quote unquote predators look like nice, normal people. You know, they don't look Mm -hmm. like you can't tell apart a bad guy from a good guy. That's why we kind of have to treat them all like the bad guys, because we don't know which ones are the good guys. And women are so conditioned and women are so conditioned to be polite and like helpful and kind. Yes. Yes. Be all of those things. But like you don't have to be that to a stranger. You can say like, no, thank you. I'm sorry. And get in or you don't even have to respond and get in. But I think there's this idea of like someone asking for help. You help. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, screw that. Screw that. Move on. What the conversation Go home. Yeah. Yes. The term better to be safe than sorry, you know. Uh, And this is in no way saying that she did something wrong or like it's her fault that maybe she helped this guy or paused or or maybe he just distracted her. She put the bag in the back seat. She goes to get in and he like somehow distracts her and is just able to to get her. Mm Mm-hmm. Not her fault at all. No. She was at the mall. Like, she's just at the mall. And we'll get into that in a little bit. But the jury found him guilty, and they recommended a sentence of death. And I don't want to spend too much time talking about this piece of crap, but he did appeal the conviction. His death sentence ended up getting overturned. Not the guilty verdict. And he would later admit guilt in, like, a death row interview in 2013. But Mm. he no longer had the death penalty. And... At first, it seemed like this was because of his cognitive disabilities, because people argued that with his low IQ, giving him the death penalty would result in cruel and unusual punishment, something that the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution protects us against. And it's probably why, you know, we just saw that post in our Facebook group about how they tend to cover up the fact that the last words of death row inmates receiving lethal injection are usually along the lines of, I'm burning from the inside out, which... Sounds like cruel and unusual punishment to me, but I'm against the death penalty, blah, blah, blah. Anyways, the conviction was overturned this year, this year, in January of 2022. And it's because the medical examiner testified that Drew died from her throat being slashed and her bleeding to death, which was based on speculation, since it's also possible that she died from strangulation. But that's fine by me. You know, he can. That's also cruel and unusual, it sounds like. It's also cruel and unusual. Yeah, mm-hmm. she had an Eighth Amendment right against that as well. Prosecutors have not said whether they would appeal this decision or not. It just seems like a waste of time to me just wanting to, you know. Mm-hmm. Alan says that the video of Drew walking through the mall on her way out to the parking lot 
on her way to her death haunts him. He says he has nightmares about it because it's such a normal activity. People go to the mall every day. You should not feel unsafe going out in your community. Like you shouldn't be unsafe walking around a mall in the middle of the day. That's all I think about now. That's all I think about. I mean, not because of In North Dakota. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Stay vigilant, you know. Ugh. And also educate children so they grow up to not perpetuate crimes because that's where it starts. That's what that's what we got to do. It's, it's too late for the adults. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you're out there doing the good work. So is that just what you do instead of teaching like we, reading and writing? We do, but uh, it's like- <laughs> we do a lot of social emotional learning this year. Yeah. yeah I'm getting better about that. Yeah, about and we did a lesson on how not to be treated or how not to we did a lesson on how not to like someone. Like what do you do when you don't mm. like someone? How do you do that? Cuz you you don't That's have to really like good. everyone. Yeah. I have that conversation daily in my job. Yeah. Mhm. Cuz people assume like you have to like every single member. No, but there's something called mutual respect. Right. And you don't have to engage with them. Right. You know? Exactly. After the trial, Linda Walker became an advocate at the state and federal levels to make sure that what happened to Drew wouldn't happen to anyone else's daughter or son. She was especially motivated because of Drew's work in her community with the Women's Center, where she volunteered to hang T-shirts for the Clothesline Project just six weeks before she was murdered. She was hanging these T-shirts. And these T-shirts were created by survivors of domestic and sexual violence. And they basically write messages or paint messages or Sharpie messages on the shirts that tell their personal story of survival on these T-shirts. And then the T-shirts are color-coded based on the types of violence the message is about. And it can be a very powerful visual. It can also be very healing for survivors to participate in. And Linda said that as time has passed, there is more and more evidence that Drew has not been forgotten, and that she is meant to be her voice. And so Linda spoke at a Take Back the Night rally, which is an organization against sexual violence. And yeah. she spoke about Drew and the Clothesline Project and said that she'd just seen way too many t-shirts hanging on the clothesline, like basically meaning violence is just way too common. She has started to put on clinics that show communities how to organize searches when people go missing. And she runs the Facebook page, Drew's Voice, that spreads awareness of her story and other stories. In 2005, Linda Walker was present at the White House when President George W. Bush signed Mm. Drew's Law, which called for all known sex offenders to be listed in a national internet database. And they face felony charges if they fail to update their whereabouts. Nice. So that's why we now have- Yeah. So wait, yeah. that is that's what started that. Yep. Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought we always. Uh, and that is the story of the murder of Drew Shadeen. So sad. I know. Do we have the shout outs? People better be staying for the shout outs. Oh my gosh. Okay, we're starting with our shout outs, everybody. All right, you go first. Well, I didn't want to start down this path already, but how could I not when the very first name is Dallas Burris? Dallas Burris. Now, this could go either way, so I'm not going to gender you, but with a name like that, I feel like you're doing big things. I feel like you could be on the stage and say, Dallas Burris, Miss Round Rock, Texas, (laughs) or you could be playing 
Major League Baseball. Mm. And that has nothing to do with your gender. You could do either one of those and either one. I'm just saying. I, I With that name, I need you to be either playing Major League Baseball or strutting it across the stage. <laughs> That's what I need. That's what I need. Dallas. All right. Next up, we got Tracy with an E. Thanks, Tracy. With an E. E-Y. Tracy with an E-Y. Not well, she, two E's and not an I-E. But the name she wants us to use is Tracy with an E. Yes. Yes. <laughs> then it would just be Trace. No. Tracy with an E. Okay, got it. Tracy with an E. <laughs> I got it. Jessica C. Major shouts. I don't even know what to do with this phonetic spell out, and I don't want to disappoint you because you're a ling major. I don't know what a ling major is. Jessica. Linguistics major, probably. Oh, oh, oh. But I don't know what this is telling me. D3. Essic. Uh. J. The D3 must make the J sound. And then the. Okay. Must make the uh sound. Essic. And then uh. Jessica. The uh. Carrot Did top. we get that right? Jessica C. I would love to know more about this. So, um. But we're glad that. on the IG. We're glad that that could bring you so much joy. We wish that. We wish that we really knew how to read it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry. We're sorry. We're not bringing you joy in this moment, but we'd love. We would love to know more. We are quick learners. Yeah, we're not even going to ask Google because that's been disappointing us. So we'll ask you. <laughs> All right, and that is our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for following us on social media. Go give us a follow. Uh, we're at Creepers Pod on Instagram, um, sometimes Twitter. That September uh, tweet. We've tweeted twice this what? month already, and it's only like the fourth five times. Oh, I got to go see what we tweeted. I think it was this one. You can join our Facebook discussion group. It's the True Crime Creepers like discussion group on Facebook. That's been really fun. Write us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. If it's a five-star rating, if it's not, <laughs> go ahead and email us your feedback. That, that'd be great. <laughs> Just and kidding. I tweeted once. <laughs> one but I've been responding to a lot of tweets. Oh. You know, like okay. back and forth. All right. And tune in next time when I'll tell Mogab another wild story. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>